3: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
4: What interested me, I actually thought of the Bayou Tapestry. I thought in terms of a narrative, because most of my work is is narrative. Um, And I thought, okay, this could work. This could work. If I can come up with a story. And the idea I thought about was July 1st, 1916. Just show that day in the human story on the Battle of the Somme. But my interest in the First World War... It comes, like I mentioned, uh, from a long way back. I grew up in Australia. And over there, uh, the First World War, like, it, like in Great Britain, is very prominent in people's consciousness. And it has a lot to do with how Australians think about themselves, mm-hmm. Gallipoli, you know. So I heard about this from when I was a kid. Uh, Anzac Day was a big deal. They would actually stop classes on Anzac Day and play over the wireless uh, in the schools, stories of Australian soldiers in the First World War. And then I would read about it. And as a boy, I was just fascinated by stuff like gas masks, poison gas, trench warfare, this idea that people went over the top into no mm-hmm. man's land. Those sorts of phrases, as a boy, I took quite literally. Um, no man's land had a, a quite a sort of horrible resonance as a kid. Now it sort of rolls off your tongue but mm-hmm. when you're a kid you think of the, the words literally and so I was fascinated by it and to this day I mean I've just bought books along the way I finally visited the battlefields on Ypres and the Somme when I was in my late 20s and just spent a few days just going and reading the, the tombstones so I thought yeah I should, mm-hmm. I should tackle this book now it's about time
0: and how long did it how long did it take you then to produce the book i mean because it's it 's what twenty four feet long Yes, yeah. an the, immense drawing
4: yeah, the drawing itself took eight months. Uh, I thought it would take about four months. I thought I was going to get away with this thing of having a, a deadline far in advance and just getting it done early, but it wasn 't like that because the composition was difficult, and uh, I tend not to draw rough, so I tend to compose directly on the page, which has its advantages, but but in this case, because the compositions were so big, it was hard for me to know where to start. So I spent the first week or two basically erasing everything I'd drawn and going back and getting a little panicked.
0: Yeah. But did, you have a, did you have an idea at the start of how the narrative was going to de- develop? I mean, do you do rough drawings and then work from those?
4: Well, not rough drawings. Basically, I did these... Very, very small maybe three inch three inch rectangles that would would um, be about two pages or three pages of the story. To show to give myself a sense of the rhythm of the book, I was going to tell the story of a day so I, I realized okay, the first few pages would be the logistics, people moving up to the front, the, the preparations, then um, a few pages of the, of the troops moving into into the trenches, Night would fall, and then you know maybe four or five pages of the battle itself, and then seven or eight of soldiers withdrawing from mm-hmm. the battle to and all the way to the casualty clearing station.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then the research, though. And then how how did the research? Did you do the research first, and you go into, so you you go to the Imperial War Museum and spend time there looking at the photographs and stuff? Right. Like
4: that. In some ways, I've been researching this for years and mm. years because um, I've been reading about the First World War and the Battle of the Somme, and so there was some osmosis that was sort of coming out. Um, and prose books are very important because there are many things that official war photography just doesn't show. It doesn't show, mostly, it doesn't show men going over the top. It usually doesn't show grievous injuries. Mm, mm. Um, so, you know, reading Martin Middlebrook's or rereading Martin Middlebrook's uh, book on the first day at the Somme, reading Lynn MacDonald and other writers, just those interviews they did with uh, people who were there somehow, you know, prose has its own power, and it gives you images in your head, so I just got those images in my head and would sort of put them on paper. But as far as the details go, I went to the Imperial War War Museum, I came to London last year, and spent um, about a week going to the photo archives, Uh, and the photo archives themselves gave me ideas of what I needed to draw, but there are things like, you know, whole binders on mules... And whole binders on carrying parties, <laughs> like how do they bring tea up to the front? <laughs> so there's photograph after photograph of these details that as many books as you have on World War I, you don't tend to find them. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's some of the stuff I was looking for, yeah. small things. What does a field kitchen look like?
0: Well, that's what the, with the, with the whole with the panorama is. You get the feeling of, of, of being there and that everything has been meticulously research and looked at yeah
4: that sort of comes from my journalism background i mean even mm. when i when i'm trying to take someone to a place like gaza or bosnia i'm interested in really capturing what a place looks like and the same aesthetic uh is it was involved with this particular mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then i spent time with a um a world war one historian named julian Petkowski. and um he helped answer a lot of questions that i wasn't getting from books for example in Middlebrook's book, it talks about soldiers left the trenches, went through the barbed wire, and assembled.
0: Yeah. And
4: what does that mean? They assembled. You know what they wanted? They wanted the troops to be in a line, to advance in a line at 100-yard intervals. So you have to sort of think logically. So what that means, and he's trying to describe it, is that they would go out of the, the, the cut in the wire, because they would cut their own barbed wire so the soldiers would get through, and basically go to either side and line up. More or less Napoleonically, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he yeah. helped. He helped me you sort of understand of some of those sorts of things.
0: And you, said, you mentioned sort of about prose, and obviously what, when you, if we, I mean, I got the d- the delivery of the book. We're seeing um, there's no words in it. I mean, it's just it just sound like like a soundless movie, like those films that you do see of the of the of, of, of the of the First World War, where there is no sound to it. It's just it's flickering images. I mean, did you did you did you toy with the idea of doing it with words?
4: No, not at all. I mean, one of the um, one of one of the things that felt interesting about doing this book is not using words. I mean, I tend to be a little over. Um, I tend to be pretty verbose with uh, in my comics, and I've been criticised for it, yes. probably quite rightly, for having too many words. So in this case, I really wanted to experiment yes. with: can I get something across? Can I get a visceral, really a visceral feeling and a narrative across without words? Mm-hmm. And in a way, this seemed like actually a very simple idea. You know, soldiers before the battle, soldiers during the battle, and soldiers after the battle.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's, it kind of all ends, isn't it, with the, well, there's the, the burial party right at the end, right. and then the new soldiers, co- co- columns coming, of, new com- of, of, of coming into the right. into the scene. You sort of
4: yeah, and, and the thing about not using words is, that I think it allows the reader, or the viewer, I'll mm. say the reader, because it's a book, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, the reader to get his or her own ideas about what's going on. I mean, you can look at the pictures I have of General Haig. Now, I have one feeling about General Haig, which I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to sort of pour bile over this figure mm. and have the reader pick that up. I'm just showing Haig going around. Now, you, if you come to this book with knowledge of who Haig was, from whatever perspective you have, you might look at him in, in one way or in another way and so, too, about the rest of it. I think you come with your own knowledge and you can interpret it mm-hmm. using your own knowledge. And, mm-hmm. and I like that. I like the fact that the reader can come up with some ideas uh, himself or herself. Himself, yeah.
0: What's well, interesting with is he's there at least three times, isn't he? Yeah. Well, because I had... You that, know, uh, you know, I like that idea that you can rep- uh, that it, use them in the Tapestry like that. You know, people keep coming back and coming back.
4: And well, you can I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in medieval art. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I was actually trying to draw a comic. This was when I was about 25 a comic in the medieval style that took place in the middle ages but actually in this case i got to do that style for the world mm-hmm. for world war one I. I it had to be compressed um i free it freed m- i freed myself up by just thinking yeah if i want to draw haig three times i'll draw him three times you know in the same There's sort d- of area yeah big deal you yeah. just think like someone from the middle I mean, ages yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Well, can we, I mean, when you talk about go, writing, doing cartoons from you know twenty-five, I and mean, you did a journalism degree first, is that right? Right. And then you didn't find sort of the work you wanted as a journalist. Yeah, not but at all. Not at all. So how did you come to? How long have you been writing, drawing cartoons before that?
4: Probably since I was about six. Um, and you know what? What's interesting, maybe to me, uh, is that I, I never, I never just drew for the sake of drawing. It always had to have a story. So I, words and images always went together. For me. And this is probably the first time... I mean, I've experimented in some of my books with having no words, but this is the first time I did a whole image in this way. It's a sort of silent... Silent, silent, silence. silent, silent piece. Yeah,
0: yeah. And how do you see it as fitting into the, your earlier, you know, your previous work? I mean, do you, do you feel like it's a, a big step to have gone to this, to a historical event, rather than the sort of political, journalistic work that you... you're you're more, I guess, more more well-known for?
4: Well, in some ways, uh, the book I did, the last large book I did, uh, Footnotes in Gaza, is historical in that I'm talking about what happened in the Gaza Strip in 1956. Mm -hmm. So I had to sort of recreate what the camps looked like in those days. But part of me, I think, creatively needs to get away from journalism, because I think journalism doesn't answer all the questions I have about humanity at this point. Right. I mean journalism often answers those questions well there's this bit of land and these people are both contending over it or back in 1389 there was this battle and for that reason these people behave this way later on I mean you can can sort of approach history that way but now for myself I've begun to think more and more in terms of psychology and what goes on in people's minds and I'm interested in the same sort of subjects conflict I guess but it I, need, I would like to see these things as an artist more than as a journalist. Right. And doing this uh, drawing, it gave me the luxury, really eight months of luxury of thinking about some things, thinking about the enthusiasm of soldiers marching to war. In, mm-hmm. You know, very specifically in mm-hmm. World War mm-hmm. I, but even before and after. You know, thinking about people obeying orders. Like, what... Why are they? Why are they pressing forward? You know, and it's not that I necessarily had the answers, but you sort of dwell on those subjects, and I and that was sort of a luxury for me.
0: But do you think at times, sort of like in Iraq, for example, and seeing soldiers, American soldiers serving there, did that feed into how you were thinking about it British did. soldiers in World War One?
4: It did, because uh, when I was in Iraq, what I soon realized was that Americans, the soldiers there weren't th- weren't thinking in terms of the big mm. picture. It was always about their buddies. Mm-hmm. And part of the motivation is you're doing what your buddies do. Uh, I talked to a couple of – these were reservists. I talked to a couple of them that really weren't supposed to be in Iraq. They were about they were transferring out of their units. But because their unit was being sent to Iraq, they got back into it. Because they trained with these people, their friends. They were all their friends. And now my, you know, my friends are going, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to go. Mm-hmm. And now my friends are here, and we're all going to take care of each other. And I imagine – that must have been I'm I'm imagining at least that part of the impulse of why soldiers went forward, they relied on each other. I mean they were the PALs battalions, they mm-hmm. they volunteered together mm-hmm. as friends. There were units that were made up of professional classes to some extent. And um you know, I hate to use the phrase band of brothers, because I think mm-hmm. it's used in a in a funny way, and but um I, I thought about that, the motivations, Yeah, they, personal motivations. Yeah, yeah.
0: But uh, do, but do you, have you have you felt that? I mean, you've done something I've never done, which is to go to a to, to a to a to a to a battlefield, to a to a war zone. I've written about war. I've written about you know the First World War. I've written about the Spanish Civil War. But I've never had the inclination to actually go there and experience that. Was that something you'd ever felt? Uh, as a as a sort of would, you know would you have volunteered as a?
4: Oh. That's sort of a terrible question because I don't know. You know, the person I was at age eighteen is not the person I am now. Mm. You know, at different times of your life you're a different person or you think differently. I mean at sixteen I would have supported Ronald Reagan, you know. <laughs> so who knows what I would have done at eighteen. Yeah. I mean But what about now though, say? No, I mean, there were, no, you know in the first in, World in, War there were in, in no way would I be interested. I mean I, I'm not a pacifist actually. No. I'm not a pacifist, but And I don't know what sort of willpower I actually have. You know, when push comes to shove, I don't really know. I'd like to think that I would maybe be a conscientious objector or I wouldn't wouldn't want to fight. But then again, you know, at different periods of my life, I would have found reasons to fight or I would have believed in the cause. It's just at this moment, um, I question it much more than I used to.
0: The, the reason for, the idea of the of you being a combatant of you yeah. or, or of the uh, war in its nature
4: right i World War two I might have been more comfortable with mm. but you know a lot of a lot of what I think about now is um also you know drawing all the soldiers uh going up to the front with enthusiasm um and it's a genuine feeling, I think, but I sometimes think of that period just before the war when all those great socialist leaders around Europe thought. This is the moment where there will be a solidarity a class based mm-hmm. solidarity, and we will not the workers of the world will not fight each other and what you realize in this case and that was probably the best moment for that to happen mm-hmm. because it was still uh, very much a manufacturing age when workers, if they were going to be organized could be easily organized in factories it could probably it might have happened in a way well as it happened in russia on perhaps in some degree um, but it didn't, and patriotism trumped that solidarity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, that interested yes, me, me also yeah. about that moment.
0: Yeah. Well, how is your work seen in America? Your, not not the First World War, but the uh, you know the, the, the Palestine-Israel, Gaza material. I mean, how do, how do Americans see your work? I think it feels more sympathetic to a sort of British audience because I think your your feeling is more. There's a sense for, for, for a British audience that in America it's very much more pro-Israel than it, than it is here, whereas your work comes out as being more sympathetic for uh, the, the Palestinian uh, right. individual.
4: Well, in America, I mean, you know, you're wading into something if you bring up Palestine-Israel. Mm-hmm. And you just have, that just goes with the territory in a way. I was lucky in that when I was first doing comic books, they weren't, there was no such thing as the graphic novel, really, um, maybe there was M- Mouse was out by Art mm-hmm. Spiegelman, but most cartoonists were working in that what they what we used to call comic books, that is now called the floppy. Those thirty-two page comic books. So when I was doing Palestine, later, which collected nine of those comic books that came out every three or four months, uh, no one was paying attention because the sales were so low. I mean, uh, by all rights, the publisher should have canceled yeah, so it. It right. was I was selling about. 2,500 to 1,900 by the end of it. It was really pathetic. So why would uh, any group that didn't like my politics even bring it up? It was under the radar. Right <laughs> so it, it was. It worked to my advantage because it, it, it allowed me to develop a voice without people yelling in my ear. And, you know, I like to think that I'm a strong-willed person, but, you know, maybe I'm impressionable too, and maybe that would have... Uh, I would have wilted under it. Who knows? Mm, mm, mm. So it gave me a chance to sort of develop my voice.
0: And You, you mentioned in, um, in your introduction about uh, Jacques Tardy, the, uh, the French uh, uh, comic artist who does wonderful books on the First World War, a number of them, which I brought about 30 years ago. I bought one of, one of his ones. And I think I've only just, just seen ones come out in English. And it seems to be a genre that seems to have escaped the British, uh, the British audience, really, in that in terms of a serious book about the First World War done in this in this style.
4: Well, you had Charlie's War here, which I know started. In, I know it, it um, comes from Battle, a boys' magazine, mm. basically. And I think the, at, at first it might have been uh, played towards boys, but I think over time, over time, it became pretty subversive. I think because you know it's written for a fourteen-year-old audience, mm. but it got more adult, and it it, it tried to show war more starkly than you'd think in some of those some of those publications mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I think it was within a certain context but it was an attempt but it, uh, yes I mean Jacques Tardy um, is is really pretty fabulous if you have a chance to check out his work
0: yeah I don't know I hope they might have some some here I don't know if they've got any of Tardy's it,
4: it's you know it's funny because um, the whole time I was working on The Great War I didn't look at Charlie's War because the the artist Joe Cal- Calhoun Draws so superbly, and drew things so well, and and the equipment so well. I thought I better not look because it's a I bit see. intimidating, and I, I don't want to. I just don't want to be influenced. And also Tardy, it was. It, I didn't want to look at his work either mm-hmm. because it has it has a feeling that I, I sometimes I, I aspire to. It's like looking yeah. at some of these images of mm-hmm. uh, <coughs> yeah. you know actual artists who were on the front line. Yeah. Uh, you know Paul Nash. I mean you look at that yes. work and you're, you're pretty humbled by it. Yeah. So I just sort of yeah. keep my head down yes. and just do what I know how to do.
0: Yeah, and this is Nash here. We were just talking about this before we came out. Um, we are Making a New World from uh, 1918, which is the work I saw when I was about 16 or 17, which really drew my attention first off to the, to the war artists of the, of the Great War and to see something in color rather than, you know, than black and white and to get an impression of someone who was actually, who was actually there. I mean, did any of those artists influence your approach?
4: Well, you know what? It's it's interesting because it's it's. Um, I think Nash was there, and he's going for an effect that I couldn't I couldn't hope to emulate. I just decided to approach things the way I know how to do, which is sort of journalistically, just as far as details go. I don't think details matter to someone like Nash. He's trying to with one image trying to sum up a whole mm-hmm, situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm not thinking exactly like that. But, um, you know, he was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you, can you sort of tell... Because I, actually, I don't know a lot yes. of the story of the artists. I just know some Is of it, their work. And I don't yeah, really know Nash's story in, on, in the trenches.
0: Well, Nash has a fascinating story because he starts off actually wanting to be an illustrator and goes to art school when he's 17, but not to be a fine artist, but to be a, uh, an illustrator doing book designs and... Um, book jackets and stuff like that, and volunteers in 1914 rather reluctantly. um, He says, I'd rather be a Red Cross man. And He'd been painting watercolours of English landscapes and gardens and uh, trees particularly was something that he really loved. And goes out eventually in 1917, in the first part of 1917, as a second lieutenant in the infantry and falls in a trench, having painted a few sort of beautiful little delicate watercolours of, of, um, of the front line falls in a trench at night, breaks a rib, gets sent back home, and his uh, art school friend, Richard Nevinson, tells him about this um, official war artist scheme that's been introduced in 1916, and actually sending artists out to try and record the war, but also to be propagandist about it, which is quite interesting that the whole British war art scheme starts off as, as propaganda, and trying to sort of influence people on the, on the side of the, the justness of the, of the British cause in the war. And then he goes out again then in late 1917 after the Battle of Passchendaele and sees what has happened and goes from being sort of of, increasingly sort of pro the war um, to seeing it as uh, absolute disaster and something that needs to be stopped and does propaganda in what the Times, when it reviews his art shows in 1918, says could be uh, used as propaganda in a league for peace, that it's it's clearly anti-war painting that he wants to stop what's happening.
4: And how did the authorities, I mean they sent him out, right, so how did they respond to him?
0: They were quite positive about him and they were quite positive about all the uh, the war artists including um, Nevinson we'll get Nevinson up in, in a minute who was the the artist who'd really um, gone and uh, captured the war in a, in a very new way. This is, this is a, a late Nevinson where he was uh, <coughs> sent as an official war artist and got in trouble for this painting for, for showing dead bodies and saying you're not actually allowed to show... Uh, dead British soldiers. Um, this is uh, titled Paths of Glory and um, it's a line from an uh, uh, 18th century poem, the Paths of Glory Lead to the Grave. So very cynical as well in the way that um, Nash's title to the previous uh, painting, We Are Making a New World, is very cynical and, and anti-war. I think that's what comes out of the whole war artist scheme really is, is uh, the destruction and devastation both to the... To the individual, but also as Nash shows it to the, to the landscape that they're uh, they're fighting over. Um, but I think the I think the officials see that as a positive thing because they they're basically blaming the Germans. This is all the Germans' fault. Oh, you know. I see. The death, oh. the destruction, mm, the annihilation um, is is what Germany has has done to uh, the civilized world, okay. um, and uh, that's that's how they could then use it as as a, as a propaganda technique. I see.
4: Now, something like this painting is interesting because. You were showing me some Nevinson earlier, mm. and it's um, more, mm, I don't know, what abstract in yeah. this way. Now, mm. why did he make this transition? Because normally it goes the other way around. You start out realistically, then you, and then you get abstract. But in this case, he decided to paint more realistically. More realistically. Do you make, know why?
0: Well, make, can you put the one up with the machine gun? Um, yeah, well, this is this is what he this is what he made his name with with this painting. When this painting came out, it was uh, was um, exhibited in 1916. Uh, it was it was received as a as sort of the definitive statement on on um, on the war. Walter Sickert said it was the the defining image of war. Um, it's in the Tate Gallery now. It's in Tate Britain. I mean, I think it's on display in the in the, in the current exhibition there. And it's, it's a surprisingly small painting, but. Um, He'd gone as a, a volunteer with the, with the Red Cross, um, as a Quake, with the Quakers, uh, in 1914 with his father, a war journalist, and he, having been a futurist and an admirer of war and saying war is going to be this great cleanser that's going to uh, you know, get rid of all the um, nostalgia and sort of Victorianism and really change the world for the better and bring in an in a, uh, incredibly exciting and futuristic world, saw actually what it was, that it was sort of carnage and... Horror, and uh, yeah, painted La French machine gunners operating machine gun, which is what really changed the war, isn't it? I mean, that's what caused the annihilation on the artillery on the song. and the machine gun. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
4: So, but do you do you know why he changed to um, more realistic painting?
0: Well, he thought he he did this as a as a self um, self employed artist, so he went out there. Was uh, invalided back home with, with rheumatism and um, spent some time with the Royal Army Medical Corps. And um, having had an incredible reception for his modernistic interpretations of the war, then got a commission as an r- official war artist and got sent out. And he felt that as an official government representative, he needed to sort of tame and tone down his, uh, his style. And actually, as an official war artist, people thought he was a bit uh, sort of mediocre compared to what the the, the, the brutality and the um, the shock of uh, of his his modern style, rather than going back to this. But then th- this caused controversy as well, as, as I've said. But there were a lot of paintings done in this this kind of a way, which I think marks the end of Nevinson's. Uh, importance and, and fame as, a, as mm-hmm. an artist. He's interesting as being the most famous young British artist in England uh, in, in 1916 and by sort of the 1920s you
4: know, he's, he's
0: producing work that nobody's really interested in anymore.
4: Huh. Now you mentioned uh, that uh, the artists um, were generally horrified, I mean you talk about Nash and Nevinson and whatever they thought about the war at the beginning later on Uh, They saw it as horrible Is that a general trend with the war artists Or are there other artists who were kind of true believers The whole way through
0: No I don't think any that that saw uh, their propaganda Well, there must must have been some who saw their propaganda as as being positive and encouraging the war effort and getting people to go out and um, be participants in in the war in some form or another. But the most significant stuff is that which is done as showing the the brutality and the the horror of the the effects of war. And even a classic painter like John Singer Sargent, people must know, who are familiar with the war, his great painting, Gast, which is in the Imperial War Museum, sort of 12 feet across or more of uh, gas. British soldiers staggering back to a, uh, um, a medical situation. I mean, that clearly states that and shows the, the, the horror of, of what has happened and that this is not something that should be continued in any form.
4: Right. We were talking about this earlier, but if you... That, that Penny's at the Imperial War Museum, and uh, you should go have a look at it and look at the people playing uh, uh, football in, in mm. the background... Like, uh, these guys are gassed, Yeah, there are people lying on the ground, but life goes on behind yeah, them, and yeah. other soldiers are so inured to this sort of thing that they're just going to play their, have their match. Mm-hmm.
0: But interesting, uh, another anecdote about that that painting is um, Sergeant went to the front with his friend Henry Tonks, who was the art school teacher at the Slade, where Nash and Nevinson and a lot of the other young artists had trained. And uh, one or other, I think it's Tonks records in his autobiography that sergeant asked him if they fought on Sundays <laughs> it's it kind of like you know, this failure of recognition of what the, what the war was, right. you know, was really like right. you know, maybe in 1914 they could have a day off for the Christmas day but it, you know, it stopped being that kind of, that kind of a war right. but I wanted to go back, I mean, going back to, your, to your work of, I mean, when, I've, when I've written, I've written about the First World War and then I've written about the Spanish Civil War and I think I, I am a pacifist. I'd say, and um, I don't know, in a way, why I write about war, um, because it's a it's a horrific thing to me, and I would not want to be there and to experience all of those things. And as I as I write and research, the the feeling of of, of death and and disappointment, the optimism which. Wars seem to start and the volunteers go out and then the the failure of that um, emotion, of that ambition.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over one million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
0: What they're going to achieve um, just sort of ends up depressing me. And I wonder if you spending sort of eight months on a a drawing like this, what mental effect that had on you?
4: Mm. Uh, hmm. I think my journalistic. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted, one of the other reasons I wanted to get away from journalism is for that same reason because it's hard. It's actually hard to draw certain things, and after I agreed to do this project, I thought, oh, actually, I didn't really want to draw a bunch of bodies again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's actually unpleasant um, because you're creating these people um, and you know, you're drawing a line of soldiers and you draw a couple and then you go, okay, the next one's going to be dead. Mm. And it's kind of a strange, yeah. it's sort of a strange feeling. Uh, it's sort of that artist godlike moment that you'd rather not have. Yeah. Yeah. But when I, was, when I was speaking to Julian Petkowski, I said, what is it if I didn't draw that you would say he should have drawn this sort of thing? And he said, bodies. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh.
4: And then I said, oh yeah, okay, that's what it's about. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, you realize you just have to sort of deal with that and, and um, make it as realistic as possible, but not histrionic. Uh, that was really important to me to not make it like um, everyone is dying, mm-hmm. everyone's blowing up. Actually, you realize from reading the material that there are many, there are ranges of experience and ranges of um, how people think about their experience afterwards.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yep. I,
4: I kept, I tried to keep that in mind too. Yes, yes, but not not easy to draw.
0: No, no, not easy to draw, not, not to experience. But how how do you think you say you wanted to get away from sort of your, your journalist side? I mean, where do you do you see an approach where you're going to go next after this?
4: Um, ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a a, a long term project for me now. Is I'm, I'm I mean partly it's partly uh, working on this sort of thing, and thinking of you know troops going up. Thinking of General Haig, um, you, you know, you think of the rulers and the ruled, and how do the rulers get the ruled to do what they want? How much of it is, is a, how much of it is uh, a matter of ideology, and mm-hmm. how much is a matter of um, real enthusiasm for some greater project? And Mesopotamia interests me because that's where you see the first elements of that. You know, with the building of the canals and of course the first city-state wars and things like that. But um, how did, how did um, the ancient temples get people to deliver some portion of their labor mm-hmm. uh, or, or produce to the temple? What made that work? And it's, it's actually sort of part of the same thing in a way for me. I mean, it's, er, everything's sort of related mm-hmm. somehow. But I kind of want to go to the source of how civilization develops, how hierarchy develops, and that sort of thing.
0: Well, so what was interesting with, um, with the First World War, uh, approaching that, is it, it, it does relate to your work in terms of the war knocking on into the whole stuff that happened with <coughs> Palestine after the war. And that the, Whenever I talk about the war, I can never iterate enough to people about how significant it was in changing the world that came afterwards. And that even now... We, we still feel the aftershocks politically of, of the war, of that war, the First World War, um, and that those regions that you've written about in your journalistic work, um, Israel, Palestine, Iraq, that what they're experiencing now is so much to knock on from... The war, in ways, created what we have now.
4: That's very true, and it's one thing in the West you should never forget, is when you go, you, when you go to, to Janine and you're sitting with some old guy, he'll talk about Sykes-Picot, the agreement mm. between the French and the English, and how they were going to divide up certain parts of the Ottoman Empire. <coughs> and they'll say things like, yes, America is the snake, but Britain is mm. it the head, it was the head Ends. of the snake. You know, and you realize, oh, they, they don't forget. Yeah, no, no. And so they're, they're looking, they look at uh, actions that the American government or the British government or the European governments do today through the prism of history, which they're more familiar with than you know, we might be.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think it would be... It's a shame in a way you, you want to go back... Well, no, it's not a shame to go back to history, but, I mean, the politics is so um, now com- convoluted but so important and so people, people don't have a sort of enough of an understanding and yet what you give in your, in your, in your work is a real sense into that. Not, not an easy way in, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an enjoyable way to, you know, to study history and to study contemporary politics.
4: I hope so, and... Uh... I personally don't see entertainment as a, as a dirty mm. word mm. because I want people to be interested in, in what I'm interested in. I mean, it's that, that sort of egotistical approach, and you realize the way to, the way to do that. It, to me, history is interesting, or, or what's going on today is interesting. Why shouldn't it be interesting for mm-hmm. a reader? How do I make it interesting? And usually that means um, staying out of the way of the good stories that are coming at you. Yeah. And what I always found difficult about the American approach to journalism is that the journalist is always the fly on the wall, doesn't have anything to do with the story, isn't really a part of it. When you're there, you realize you are a part of the story because you're, a, you're usually a foreign presence and people are reacting to you. You realize that you rely on guides and interpreters who have their own agenda. You know, why pretend otherwise? Journalists are not demigods. Mm, mm. You know, we're human beings uh, trying to get something, some, get a story, and I, I try to show some of that. And I think, I think the readers basically respond to that approach. It seems yeah, more yeah, real somehow, because yeah, it is yeah,
0: real. Yeah, yes, yes. How, will, how do you think an American audience will receive this work? I mean, what's the concept of the... I mean, is, is the first day of the psalm a concept that's, that's, you know, well understood in America I mean obviously America didn't come into the war until the following year in America
4: not I mean um, in America probably if I have any success it'll be, it'll be based on heavy promotion <laughs> um, because the first world war doesn't really doesn't really fit into their consciousness like it does in the commonwealth countries um, when I'm in, I've been interviewed the book actually hasn't even come out there but I've already been interviewed a number of times and they're holding the interviews and all that but often the questions are, you know, tell us about the battle of the Somme. Why is that battle important? Maybe not a question you would get so much here where mm. there's more of a sense of it here. Though recently I, I mentioned that to an audience and someone came up to me afterwards and said, you know, actually I think younger people don't really know about this anymore. So I, I don't know myself.
0: Well, I think it's going to change over the next few years, obviously. I think there's going to be so much. Uh, right. I mean, it's, it's kind of hitting this. I uh, see so many stuff about the war now in, in 2013, even a year ahead of the, uh, the start of the anniversary. There's so much stuff that's, right. already, that's already coming up. But I think we've had our sort of 40 minutes of, of conversing. I think it's worth sure. um, opening the uh, questions to the floor. It's a very interesting book. Um, the one thing I, I didn't see, I might have missed it, were um, firing squads. Did you consider um, dealing with the whole issue of desertion uh, in, in the work um, obviously not necessarily specific to that particular battle but it was obviously an important part of the the overall, uh, the overall war Is that something that you, you thought about um, doing
4: did everyone, everyone can hear that question I take it well I mean the only, I didn't draw any firing squads as far as I know no one was shot outright on that day though there is an allusion to it I think in Middlebrook's book Um, what I did show though is a military policeman standing at the opening of a trench um, as sort of a hint and in in one of the annotations in the booklet I I mention this Mm. military policeman because yes, there were people who were there to make sure people didn't leave the trenches unless they were ordered to leave the trenches so there's a hint of that sort of discipline but no, I didn't show any of the consequences like that Yeah, I was saying that you know, I use uh, Palestine to teach uh, my history oh, students yeah. about Arab-Israeli conflict, so I need to think about how to use this to teach World War I to my students. But anyway, my question is, um, you know, when, when you're doing this, were you influenced in any way, uh, let's say, by the ancient Chinese scrolls, which also extend to very long, or uh, the woodcut novels of the 20s and 30s? Well, I hate to say this, but my history of art knowledge is, is really, it's not, it's not that great. I never studied it. So others have mentioned that. They've mentioned, oh, it doesn't. The, were you influenced by the scrolls? But really, the Bayou Tapestry was, was my touchstone for this. You know, I'm, I'm a, I should know more about other, other cultures' art, but uh, I'm lacking in that regard.
0: Can I ask if you did it as a single drawing? Is, was it completed
4: on one piece of paper? No, no. I, I, uh, I couldn't find board that long, and I probably couldn't have fit it into my workroom. Uh, LAUGHTER but so what I did is I was drawing on sheets of paper that were about a meter long that basically uh, I drew eight of those so there were three pages uh-huh. essentially to each uh, on e- each original is three pages long but the pieces are all
0: completely unbroken though so how did you connect the uh, the, d- the device um
4: well at some point I mean I was worried about the seams and how they would work but I, I learned to overlap things and I don't I don't even know how to use Photoshop I'm afraid to say. <laughs> so I would send uh, written directions with photocopies of how it should look. What what tree should overlap. There's a lot of stuff that you don't see because it's it's being overlapped by a tree. I would mm. draw a little more extra than I needed mm, to right. knowing the tree was going to go over it or a farmhouse or something like that. So it was just a matter of um figuring that out mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh providing clear directions. Yeah.
1: Uh, Mr. Sacko, I'm delighted to see you. I've enjoyed your... The two books I can see here, Footnotes in Gaza and Palestine, I read them when I was lecturing at university in Malaysia and I absolutely enjoyed them. Um, You say that journalism and artistry are, as it were, not always uh, compatible and you're inclining more towards the artistic element than that. Um, But when reading your um, two books here, it's not just... Well, It's not political journalism, more like your humanism that comes across enormously powerfully. And uh, what I want to know from you is whether you really do feel that you can keep journalistic um, uh, motivation out of what you do. And the other thing, which is perhaps uh, I, I just occurred to me, is how did the uh, American public react to your books here, which uh, seem to show a bias towards the Palestinians? Um, uh, when you had written them
4: Okay, so the, uh, I'll answer the last question first, then you'll probably have to remind me of the first question. But um, l- like I said, when I started out doing it, I didn't get any comments because the, b- it, the comic books ser- simply weren't selling. It's only when it was collected and putting, put into a bookstore that uh, put into bookstores that maybe I had some, a few problems, but not I have to say honestly, not that much. Uh, some stores in North America refused to carry the book because the owners had their own political reasons but that's valid Um, footnotes in Gaza I would say some places did reviews but others that probably will, will review the great war didn't want to review that in other words it's not so much criticism as they just leave it alone, they ignore it as far as reviewing, that's that's sort of the backhand way, of not really criticizing, because they, I think they can't really criticize the work itself as far as the research goes, but you just ignore it. That's sort of what is an operation there. And your first question was about, uh, well about
1: um, how often you actually associate to the
4: journalistic aspect when
1: you're dealing with such matters.
4: Well, I mean, the journalistic aspect comes through because I'm, I'm still very detail-oriented, I think. But, you know, I'll never, I'll never stop doing journalism, no matter what I say. I th- I, in July, I was in Srebrenica, and I'm, uh, I finished a piece about the burials that go on every year on the anniversary of the fall of Srebrenica. So I still will do things like that. But if, you know, it's, it's the power, sometimes I think about the power of fiction. Fiction you know, with journalism, sometimes you can show the dots, but with fiction, sometimes you can connect those dots. I, can't, I cannot assume people think a certain way in journalism. I have to ask them, and the quote is what matters. I can't sort of say, well, actually, they're probably thinking this. In fiction, you can do that. Sometimes you know more than you can put on the page as a journalist, and that's where fiction writers have the advantage and why I'm interested in exploring other avenues.
5: Um, you talked about this a bit. I was quite interested by um, the idea of you writing or drawing a, a book historically based because in all of your other books, um, you're quite present in them. Mm. You're, you're obviously not the main story, but you're... I'm thinking of Safe Area Garajda and you've got your, your sort of... Did the development of your relationship with Eddin and that draws a lot of stuff out of him. Um, and was it different from a... A sort of creative point of view to be writing a story where you were you you were not directly you were not there you didn't sort of you didn't I suppose it goes back to that thing about fiction you were saying so I'm I'm just asking you to sort of comment about the the difference between writing something where you have been there uh, and where you are in the story
4: to some extent and writing something where you're not. Well, it's very different. But as I mentioned before, you know, I've, I've already experimented with this in my books because the book about Garajda, a lot of it takes place while I was in Garajda but then it goes back a few years, just four or five maybe or three, to uh, where I illustrate scenes I never saw. So you think, now how do I do that? Well I walk the ground, I talk to the people, I try to get as much information as possible about that time and the same is true in the footnotes in Gaza, I mean then it's 50 years back And then, you know, you go to Gaza City, you find a photo archive of the UN to get pictures of the camps. Some old guy takes you around and shows you this was the roofs we had back in those days. I mean, there are ways you do it. And in this case, yes, I'm not in it. And, uh, yes, it's further removed. But then you think, okay, well, there are still first-person accounts. So you, you, you take what you can. There is information. There's raw material available, is what I'm saying. It might be different in each case, but you... You take it, you think about it, and you try to use it. Was that connected with the
5: decision not to use words?
4: Uh, not really. It's, uh, the, the question was, was that connected with the decision not to use words? Not really. Um, again, you know, it's also, I just want to do something different. Creatively, I've, I feel I've been doing the same thing. In some ways, I think to myself, how many more times can I go and see a refugee camp? okay it's in a different place this is Ingushetia, this is Palestine this is some other place but in the end these stories are about privation and all that sort of thing and it's not that all these stories aren't important but for myself as someone who's, who's trying to be creative I think can I learn m- any more and, or am I just going to keep doing the same story over and over in another place it was just a, oh, I needed to make a move in a different way and this was an opportunity
3: Yeah, I'm a big fan of your work, so it's great to see you in person. Um, Okay, so I've got two questions. One is related to this, and one is slightly more trivial. So the more serious question is, um, in most of your other works, you write um, a lot, you use words a lot, and that's great, but in this, uh, I think it's, you don't use any words at all, so... I know you mentioned this earlier, but if you'd go into a bit more detail into why you made that decision and how
5: different that was from your previous works. And the second slightly more trivial question is, will you be doing any autographs today? Please say yes. What, <laughs>
4: what, was, that? what was the second question?
3: Will you be signing any autographs today?
4: Oh, yeah, I'll be doing thank that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, you know... In some ways, I'm a frustrated. I'm, I'm, in some ways, I'm a writer in a cartoonist's body, because when I, I got a degree in journalism, I wanted to be a hard news writer. That's what really interested me, and I like the pressure of deadlines. And now I'm at a, a, a stage where, to me, a deadline is a year from now or two years, and it, it still feels like pressure somehow. I, I really love words, but I really love images too, and I like the synthesis of them. Um, I don't know if I could ever see myself being purely a writer, but in this case, I wanted to see myself as purely a drawer. And there's some relief in that on a certain level, and there's some relief in letting the reader read things into the image and not sort of making it clear, which is sort of what I've done in a lot of my work, for, you know. Um, you're trying to get a point across or trying to make things apparent. In this case, I'm trying to leave it a little more open. So that, I mean, I, I hate the word challenge, but that was kind of the fun of it in a way.
0: Well, that's what I like when I read it, actually, when I picked it up and looked at it. The first time, it's sort of like you've got this pic- picture book. You look through it and think, oh, right, it's not quite what you're expecting after you've seen your other work. And then you start to sort of dwell on it and sort of explore it and look into the detail of it. So it is like the sort of Bayeux in that respect. In that you can, you've got the story, but also reminded me of Stanley Spencer. I don't know if you know Stanley Spencer's mm-hmm. Berclair Chapel, where he yeah. recounted his experiences of the war all in painting. So a chapel just filled with Stanley Spencer's experiences of his war, no words there at all, but just walls and walls of of painting of his narrative, in pictures of his war experience. Right.
5: <coughs> um, you just touched on the bio-tapestry there and mentioned that it was. A par- partial inspiration for this work uh, and I was thinking about that and thinking about the story behind that, the purpose of the biotapestry and th- that's a victor wanting to record and brag almost or tell about their triumphs for very specific political reasons of the time but essentially they're trying to tell a story and I wonder what was the story that you were trying to tell when you set out to do this to begin with?
4: well I mentioned this in um, my author's note um, There, there's a it became clear almost immediately that there's a start point and an end point and the start is the general and the end point is the grave I mean I, I start with General Haig, and at the end I show corpses being buried and so what happens between the general and the grave that's sort of how I approached it in a very general sense um, yeah that's that's really it. I mean, to me, this was one of the simplest ideas I've ever had. So I don't want to over, you know, o- overdo it, what my thought process was, because sometimes ideas come to you very, very quickly, and you just say, okay, that's good, and you just, you just start.
0: Um, people have commented on your uh, relationship to the work of Robert Crum. Um, great uh, cartoonist, and I notice in this book, um, the o- early work is very Crumb influenced and I don't see Crumb uh, in any lightweight sense at all, nor this stuff, the autobiographical stuff my um, neighbour on the right here referred to your putting yourself in the frame in, in the Garajdi books and so on and so forth um, what, are, what are your feelings about that relationship to Robert Crumb and returning to that autobiographical narrative the story of yourself and your various conflicts
4: within the conflicted world that you depict well robert crumb is i mean clearly a huge influence on my work at some point i was really trying to ape robert crumb and then you realize you can never get there and you just sort of you just sort of glore in your limitations at some point you just so it's okay i'm limited that's my style um, no i really i really admire his work i don't understand all of it and some of it is downright offensive but um, his greatest work is probably the greatest work in comics, in my opinion. Um, well, like a lot of cartoonists, uh, North American cartoonists in the 80s, I was doing autobiographical stories. You know, you're breaking up with a girlfriend or, you know, you, you're trying to get a commercial job or something like that. So when I eventually started doing my journalistic work, I didn't think of it as journalistic work. I thought, oh, I'm I'm going to the Palestinian territories. I will do my autobiographical story in the Palestinian territories, more like a travelogue. It became journalistic uh, organically without me thinking up some theory behind it. It became journalistic because I'd studied journalism, and once I was there, I was interviewing people just as a natural response. It was an automatic sort of response. So that concept of having my character in the the stories wasn't thought out in terms of the journalistic implications of that. It was accidental. But to me, it had great uses because it was clear then that my work was subjective and it allowed me to show my my interactions with people I met along the way, which generally are the most interesting stories and the kind of stories you tell someone across a dinner table. So it accidental, but it clearly had its uses, and I was aware of them.
0: Will you
4: come back to that? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll do autobiographical work in whatever context, I think, but not exclusively maybe. Like I say, I want to I go off in different directions. The problem with comics is they take a long, long time. So you do three or four comics about uh, conflict, and everyone thinks that's all you do or that's all you know and you, you do them as, as journalism, and they think of you in that way. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, there's just other things I need to do. And I'm, I'm at that age. I think it's now or never. Okay. Um, so, question. So are you left-handed? <laughs> the question is, am I left-handed? No, oh, I'm not. i know. That, oh, I'm to yeah. wrong. <laughs> is it,
2: all right.
4: Hello, um, I wondered if during your research you were surprised by anything or if for the
5: most part your research was confirmation of what you would have thought about the terror and that,
4: that much. That's a very good question. I mean, not to sort of sidestep it, But in some way, I've never lost my initial boyhood surprise at the war. I've never sort of lost this... A certain incomprehension at people moving across a battlefield like this and just uh, going forward under this kind of horrendous fire. Um, And it's hard for me to imagine that any, any people endured this sort of thing. I mean... Uh, I, I imagine you 're British you probably have a lot of you probably had relatives that fought in the first world war. Uh, a couple of people have come up to me and had me sign uh, books not to them but to their deceased some deceased ex serviceman of theirs who died at the Somme so all this surprises me it still surprises me. The whole thing surprises me actually.
1: Um, Hi, I, I want to say I'm your fan and uh, I'm an American and I love your footnotes in Gaza and so do all my friends. Oh, thank you. Uh, so we definitely have a progressive growing culture there. Um, my question is, you mentioned that you wanted to address other things in your work and I'm mostly familiar with the stuff around conflict, but what are these other kind of, what, what are these other spaces you want to explore?
4: Um, the state, hierarchy inequality I mean you can do some of that in journalism of course but uh, that's why I wanna, I'm interested in Mesopotamia I'd, I'd actually like to well, for my own benefit it's not that I have preconceived notions of all of this sort of thing but I'd like to sort of learn something myself and this is Mesopotamia is such new territory for me that it's a question of reading a lot and interviewing archaeologists which I've been doing over the last little while and will continue to do Maybe one more question here, is that right?
3: Joe, yes, there's an amazing film by Joe Losey called King Country, and I'm just wondering whether you've seen it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Uh, your point of view is very much a bird's eye view. You get the horror of the quantity of people killed. This film is set in a trench, and it's, to pick up on our friend's uh, comments, it's about a court-martial about a young guy who's labeled deserters but is clearly shell-shocked and walks away from the front and he's court-martialed and eventually executed but it's uh, a worms eye view if you like and it's set in a trench in a tiny room mm-hmm. which is the improvised court-martial and uh, it might be interesting for you to see That sounds really interesting. The other extreme of the spectrum which is just as horrible and very powerful. Yeah that sounds really
4: worse. Yeah, I'd like yeah. to see that. That sounds really interesting. Thank you.
3: Thank you all very much for your questions. Um, it was a terrific night. Thank you very much. If you haven't seen the book properly, you get a sense of what an extraordinary piece of work it is from these images. We've got stacks of it. Um, so please do stick around and thank Joe and David. Thank you very very much. Thank you. <laughs> you. It's it 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 amazing piece of work. It's really incredible. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.